Welcome to Connecting Citizens to Science, a podcast from the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine about engaging communities in global health research. I'm Kim Ozano. And I'm B. Eggard. And throughout this series, we'll be talking to researchers from around the world, exploring how they connect with people to address a range of challenges in global health. Hello, welcome back, listeners. This month's series is all about climate change and health. And in this week's episode, we will be learning about environmental degradations from climate change that impact health. We will hear about a research project that is investigating how pregnant farmers in the Gambia perceive and act upon occupational heat stress and health impacts on both themselves and their unborn children. The expected increase in heat in the Gambia is one of the most significant health threats caused by climate change. However, very little is known about the gender dynamics of exposure and response to heat stress, including women's perceived health risks, their adaptation strategies to this intense heat, and their perceptions of climate change in general. Our guests will be sharing their experience of holding peer-to-peer learning festival with school children in the Gambia. The Climate Change Solutions Festival is the first of its kind and gave a unique insight into perceived climate change problems and solutions. We will also hear about changes in agricultural land use and how this impacts health outcomes in rural communities. But before we begin, let's hear from AJ. AJ, our co-host, how are you today? I'm fine, thank you, Kim. Hello, everyone. Um, my name is Ajay Bhave, and I am the Global Challenges Research Fellow at Newcastle University, uh, based at the Water Security and Sustainable Development Hub. Um, I'm an environmental scientist who works on climate change risks, impacts, and adaptation uh, across countries in the Global South, uh, Asia, Africa, and South America. Um, and I'm particularly interested in climate services uh, and how we can use scenarios and decision-making approaches to help communities and stakeholders take adaptation decisions under uncertainty. And I'm quite excited to be a part of this particular podcast. Thanks, Kim. Me too. We have a really interesting session with our guests, Anna and Alu, who will be sharing their work in the Gambia. So let's hear about them. Alu, how are you today? And tell me a bit about yourself and the work you do. Thank you very much, Kim. Uh, I am Dr. Alu Ahmed. I'm a PhD student at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Uh, I'm based at the Medical Research Council Unit, the Gambia, and um, I'm a veterinary surgeon uh, with a range of uh, research interests in one health and planetary health topics. Uh, thank you for very for having me. Thanks very much. I think it's the first time we've had a veterinary surgeon on our podcast, so you're very welcome, and it's it's good to have that different perspective as well. Anna, welcome, and tell us a bit about yourself. Hello, Kim. Hello, AJ. Nice to meet you both. Um, my name is Anna Bunnell. I am a Wellcome-funded clinical PhD fellow, also at the London School, working in the Gambia at the MRC unit. My background is as a medical doctor with training in anaesthetics and intensive care, um, where I have brought my understanding of um, physiology to um, try to understand a bit more details about the mechanism behind some of the um, poor outcomes we see in pregnancy when they're exposed to extreme heat. Wonderful. So welcome both of you. I think we would like to understand more about the projects you've been working on. So uh, Anna, let's stick with you. Tell us more about the projects in the Gambia that you're going to talk to us about today and also a bit about the communities you worked with. Sure. So I'm working on trying to understand the impact of extreme heat on pregnant women and in particular on pregnant um, subsistence farmers. Um, 
what we know from large scale studies, mainly in um, temperate climates, so from the US and Europe, is that when women are exposed to high temperatures, they have an increased risk of stillbirth, low birth weight and preterm birth. But what we don't know is why that happens. And so trying to give um, to develop effective um, interventions or adaptations that will mitigate against this effect that we see um, is, is impossible at the moment. So most of the um, advice is avoid the heat, which in the setting that we're based in, where women are working in the fields primarily to provide food and support for the family, that is not really the option um, for them. Uh, so that's kind of the, the primary focus of my, of the, of the main sort of chunk of my work. But I'm also very much interested in, um, speaking to and developing, um, understanding and solutions around climate change for those who are most vulnerable to and most affected by it. So that's partly why I've focused on pregnant women, but also focused on school children to understand their perceptions of climate change and how they see local solutions to the problems that they are already experiencing. Thank you very much. And it's great to hear that instead of pre-thinking what interventions and adaptations are available and applying them, it sounds like you're really trying to understand what is feasible within the context as well. So that's great. Alua, please, can you uh, tell us about the work you've been doing? Thank you very much, Kim. Uh, my project here in the Gambia focuses on uh, rural communities, and uh, I'm trying to understand how agriculture influences the risks of uh, transmission of diseases from animals to humans, uh, with a focus on how it shapes human interaction uh, with animals and how it also shapes the population and distribution of disease reservoirs around this uh, community. And agriculture is uh, an important upstream driver in the land use change and also zoonotic disease transmission. Recent reviews published in Nature Communications, for instance, by Herald Shah uh, and all in 2019 shows that populations living in rural communities uh, in agricultural landscapes are double at risk of uh, infectious diseases than those populations and communities that are not. And that makes it a really important driver for uh, zoonotic disease risks. And uh, the project emphasis is to better understand the mechanism through which uh, agricultural land use influences disease spillover, transmission of diseases from animals to humans. And uh, importantly, also, this project also tackles an ambition of planetary health to uh, catalyze a transition towards a more sustainable land use trajectory. Uh, preventing uh, the transgression of a number of uh, planetary health uh, boundaries specifically. Thank you. Thanks very much. I mean, you both cover so much, um, and it's really clear that your work is really about um, how climate change is creating new risks and changes that need to be adapted to and responded to very quickly. Um, I think for our listeners, we'd like to understand a little bit more about uh, the rural communities, the children, pregnant women that you're working with in the Gambia. What are some of the challenges and opportunities that uh, enable scientists to better connect and understand their needs and to respond to those? Uh, thank you very much. Uh, so the communities that I'm working with here in the Gambia <coughs> are basically rural communities that you would say are disproportionately just as uh, other rural communities in other areas in sub-Saharan Africa, 
they are disproportionately exposed to the risks of zoonotic infections and also the attendant consequences of these diseases. Uh, these communities are more in close interaction with the environment and their livelihood depends mostly on uh, the natural environment. They have more interactions with environments and with animals. So this makes it a very interesting setting in the context of my project. And so to link up with these communities uh, in this research focus is very important. And uh, also we have done that right from uh, the beginning of this uh, uh, project and I think the communities are, are quite uh, receptive of this uh, project. What uh, we are trying to do is to build a trust between uh, us, the researchers, for, uh, on this project and also the community so that uh, we personalize it to these settings and they feel that this project is more about them. And so uh, moving forward, that is going to be easy to achieve the impacts that we intend to achieve in this project. And so I think uh, the community is an important setting and they are receptive of, of this research. And uh, some of the challenges with these communities uh, uh, is that these communities are, are often uh, not having access to health facilities and uh, also research initiatives and uh, intentions usually do not reach these communities. So I think in that respect also is, is also very important. That's great. Thank you very much. Um, we hear trust come a lot, up a lot in uh, our, our Connecting Citizens to Science podcast and the importance of uh, gaining trust with communities in order for research to take place. And I really like the phrase personalize the research. I think I'll be using that moving forward. And, and I think it really captures the importance of uh, recognizing that this is a joint adventure. Anna, pregnant women and school children, tell us a bit about how you uh, managed to connect with these particular groups. Um, well, firstly, I think just uh, to put the context in place, Alu and I actually, our rural communities are the same communities. So we are both been working in the same place. Um, and we are very lucky that the MRC have a field station that has been active in that area for the last 70 years. And they run a free clinic for the sort of local villages. Um, they, they transport people who need to see the clinic to the village to, to, to visit. And so there is a really good buy-in from the community around research projects generally. That said, MRC has been there for a long time, so there is also a certain amount of burnout in terms of joining research projects because they're, you know, coming through those same communities for a long time. But from my experience, when I was working with the pregnant women there, they were incredibly um, engaged and um, enthusiastic about working with the project. Um, what we did uh, was follow the pregnant women when they actually went out to work on their farms or fields. We measured their direct exposure. So we took these portable devices with us out into the field. We measured how that then was um, affecting them personally. So we looked at their sort of physiological strain. So how, what their heart rate was doing, what their temperature was doing. And then we also looked at how that was affecting blood flow to the baby by doing a more complex scan in the field. And, um, I recently went back, having now finally um, analysed the data um, and visited, attempted to visit all of my participants and, and managed to access maybe about 60% of them. So we went to each of the villages that we had recruited from. We did a kind of dissemination stroke um, engagement session where we gave them cake and drinks and, and T-shirts with some sort of basic health advice. 
but also um, explaining to them what we found, which was that they are being exposed to extreme heat already and that we did see an impact on their babies already. And we know that going forward, there's going to be more and more extreme heat events. And so um, although we at this stage, we didn't really have um, that many solutions we could give them, we gave some very basic general advice for avoiding the heat, which um, are, are evidence-based from other occupational health settings, such as resting in the shade, making sure you drink plenty, and, and, and very simple um, mechanisms um, to help them. And I think that um, kind of learning with and from them um, really helps trying to develop how you can see the future for them going forward, because this is not a simple problem. This is requires massive translational change and transformative change within the communities as well as like globally. Um, and yet you're talking to people who are already experiencing the impacts on in their daily lives. Um, so yes, it was a it, it was a very incredible experience to work with them and then to start sort of trying to come up with some of these solutions with them. And for the school children, we um we actually were also um quite ambitious. We we traveled across the country, we we um visited 50 schools to try to encourage children to really think about what climate solutions they would like to develop. And then we invited them all together to um attend this festival where they got to demonstrate their solutions to the problems that they saw. And um other NGOs and stakeholders also came together. So um, that was a real opportunity for us to, again, learn with and from the communities for what they see is a problem for them and what they see as, as a potential solution. Thanks very much. Um, I just have uh, one question for you on a, a more personal level. Climate change is creating so many new problems that we don't have immediate solutions to. And you've depicted to us here that you're trying to engage the community and come up with solutions, but that's going to take time and we're going to have to learn. And uh, at the moment, they will be continuing to work in this intense heat. Um, how do you kind of manage that frustration of not having immediate solutions uh, within your work? And, you know, how would you advise others in that kind of moral dilemma? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think at the moment, what I've tried to do is bring awareness and education to the problem as a starting point. And I think any campaign around um, mitigating the uh, health impacts of heat needs some kind of educational component to it. So that, I think, is, is a reasonable starting ground um, for it. Um, then we've also done some interviews where we've really tried to understand what the women themselves are doing at this stage to um, both in terms of what they're experiencing for the heat but also what they do to try and avoid the heat um, and we are in the process of writing grants to try to get some of this money towards doing an intervention study which I think is what's definitely needed going forward. That's great. And really good to hear you advocate for that next steps as, as soon as possible so that we can, you know, work together to find those solutions. I will hand over to you, AJ, to look at some of the more technical aspects around climate change. Thanks very much, Kim. Um, so maybe delving a bit deeper into this very interesting uh, issue that you are dealing with, connecting the different dimensions of climate change, environmental degradation, land use uh, uh, change, as well as uh, health issues that arise from that or that are linked to that. Um, 
looking at all the uh, the gamut of issues that you have dealt with, uh, what were the main lessons that you learned uh, from your work, uh, and how can the findings contribute to addressing issues in these vulnerable groups? Maybe we can start with Aliyu. Uh, thank you very much, Ali. So, uh, in my own interaction with communities uh, uh, in the Gambia, rural communities, and my project, uh, I really found out that a lot of uh, uh, people in the community depend on agriculture for uh, usually practices at the subsistence level. And uh, a lot of people also have, uh, have been more and more forest activity, going to the forest to pick firewoods, and uh, a lot of hunting activity, all posing an increased risk uh, to the transmission, possible transmission of zoonotic diseases to uh, to people around these villages. And uh, also, uh, most of the participants that we've engaged, uh, are usually most of them have uh, a low level of, uh, of understanding of what zoonosis is, some of the risk factors. And you find people having an increased interaction between the animals around the environment. Most of the household settings have ruminant uh, uh, housings within the compound and uh, they interact with these animals often uh, without uh, the information on how to really protect themselves, improve hygiene and, uh, you know, to really understand the risks, their close interaction with these animal poses. So in summary, most of uh, uh, the communities have close interactions with these animals. And uh, most of the agricultural activities is subsistence and traditional, and which really needs an, uh, an increase in uh, land, uh, uh, increase in land size in order to be able to cultivate more in response to an increased demand and also in response to uh, uh, economic needs. And so that increasingly poses uh, the risks to using land in a sustainable way, because then you would need a large portion of land to be able to cultivate, to feed a growing family, or the demand from a growing population in the Gambia. And so some of these findings uh, have really, would really inform us into coming up with sustainable ways to use land in order to mitigate some of the uh, adverse effects of uh, environmental degradation caused by agriculture and also to prefer solutions to uh, some of the risks, these close interactions with animals uh, places. And so it could be prioritizing vaccinations for animals, for instance, and also reshaping the location of uh, houses of livestock within compounds. So interventions like uh, encouraging people to place livestock housing away from uh, the main household settings is uh, some of the some of the solutions we are preferring and uh, really engaging the community as well right from the beginning of the project to the formative study and moving forward on some of the risks and the implications of having such a close interaction with both livestock and wildlife because we are looking at uh, a couple of uh, interfaces as regards to disease transmission including wildlife, human interface, wildlife, livestock interface, and wildlife, domestic animal interface. These interfaces play a significant role in the transmission of zoonotic diseases. So when you talk about the transmission of zoonotic infections, usually people think it's just from wildlife to human populations, but it's really more than that. It could be from wildlife jumping into livestock and then to the populations in these rural communities. Same thing with domestic animals. Most of the people there also are pastoralists practicing mixed agriculture. 
and uh, we did confirm uh, reports from uh, the food and agricultural organizations also uh, published in, in uh, around 2003 that most of the farmers in rural the Gambia practice mixed farming, both crop farming and rearing of animals. And so usually that poses an increased risk because uh, they are in close, they are pastoralists, they live with these animals and uh, they are inclined to also stay with them in the same compound. And uh, usually they take these animals while doing farming activities also with their domestic animals. So the different species that are potential reservoirs for zoonotic disease are also in close interaction together with the people. So this forms a closed system where the sylvatic cycle of disease can really jump into the domestic cycle easily. And so these are some of the issues and uh, some of the solutions we are looking around. And we are really engaging the community to make sure some of these solutions are, are absorbed and are, are really taken with, uh, with prior importance. That is very interesting. And I would like to add uh, to the, the deep dive that Ali, you took us uh, into the understanding of these issues. Yeah, thanks, Ajay. I might not be as detailed as Aliu, but I feel that there are sort of uh, some very clear lessons from the pregnancy work in that uh, most of the evidence that we have currently is coming from temperate regions, um, despite the fact that we know that tropical regions are the, are the regions that are going to be and are most severely affected from extreme heat, as we even see currently with the massive heat wave that's going on in um, India and Pakistan at the moment. Um, so these are the countries which are really being impacted. They're living at the forefront of the climate crisis, but the evidence base on the impacts of heat and, and health in those populations is actually missing. And so um, to help bring that evidence into the policymakers and global kind of picture about where we need to um, change the trajectory, uh, I think is, is a very clear need. And so the pregnancy work that we've done, we've showed that the pregnant women here, despite being acclimatized to this heat from birth, um, are they are experiencing heat stress and they are they are having physiological like response to that heat stress, despite having the best acclimatization as, that you could envisage it, it for the human body. Um, so I think that is a very clear um, message that we need to act now to help these um, the populations that are at the forefront of the climate crisis, despite having contributed nothing to the problem. Um, and from the the, um, the work with the school children, um, what I think was uh, very clear was that they are extremely engaged in finding solutions to the problems that they see. So for them, in their communities, they see mountains of plastic surrounding them. They see trees being chopped for, for firewood and charcoal. And they really recognize that this is not the path that they want their future to look like. And so giving them agency to change the direction that we are currently on is I think also incredibly important. Thank you very much, Anna. Um, it is very interesting to note that both of you mentioned information uh, and information about future climate change and changing risks is quite central to developing uh, climate change adaptation options and identifying ways forward. How did you go about generating and communicating such information where in, in as you mentioned, Anna, there are issues with existing and obs so observational issues. Uh, how did you go about doing this? So we, we basically asked 
people whether or not they had experienced any changes in the weather over the last five to 10 years and allowed them to explain what that meant to them. And the majority of people that we spoke to had two main um, changes that they had noticed in their daily life, which was heat and reduction in rainfall. And the main concerns for people was actually crop production and ability to feed their families. Although people are aware that the heat is there and it's very strong, there isn't really a clear understanding that that then maybe impacts on their health. There's a general belief that, you know, well, it's always hot here. What do you expect? We're in the Gambia. Um, so that that was sort of one way that we tried to engage with sort of climate, the sort of the gradual change of the climate that has occurred over the last 10 years. And for the school children, we did do some workshops kind of explaining greenhouse gases and what climate change means and, and, and that as well to kind of give them a bit more of the science background. Brilliant. Ali, what experience did you have with such issues? So uh, interestingly, we used uh, multiple indicator uh, survey questionnaires in uh, some of these rural areas. And uh, it was uh, immediately apparent to me that there is a consensus in uh, the responses that we're getting from participants. For instance, using one acre of land to cultivate granules, for instance, uh, you don't get the same output you get previously. And uh, the raining season also has significantly shrinked. Uh, previously, in past years, there used to be raining season in the Gambia for four months and, and a couple of weeks. Now it's, it's very much less than that. And uh, we've really gotten some, some uh, information uh, from the respondents themselves. And uh, I think it is time to look at sustainable ways in, in agriculture here in the Gambia, but also to look at ways to mitigate the effect of some of these climate change issues while doing that. Very interesting. Um... I, I, was, I was just thinking about the range of methods and approaches that both of you encompass, and that is really interesting to think about in terms of sort of applicability uh, across geographical settings. Uh, Eliu, what are your thoughts on, 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 on your research applicability in, um, in other regions in Gambia or elsewhere uh, around the world? Uh, thank you very much, Ajay. So uh, the issue with uh, land degradation, particularly agriculture, is something that is common uh, to a lot of countries, particularly tropical countries, so sub-Saharan countries. And uh, I think uh, is we also have similar issues in most of these settings and they share the same uh, geographical or ecological characteristics with the Gambia. Uh, almost uh, 15 sub-Saharan African countries share the same uh, uh, ecological uh, characteristics with the Gambia. And so some of the methods we, we used here can be applied in different settings. We use a multitude of methods, including uh, survey questionnaires to ask people on the uh, land use decision processes, who decides what to plant and who decides the size and what informs the size of the land they use for agriculture, for instance, uh, and the study settings in which we are using, we are using for the project uh, uh, was carved from a quantitative uh, remote sensing uh, technique so that we sample people from different uh, type of land use change gradient. So some of these uh, methods are quite applicable to an array of geographical areas with similar uh, focus or problems. 
Anna, what are your thoughts on the geographical sort of applicability of, of your work? Yeah, thanks, AJ. I think um, it really needs a broader geographical spread. So our work has very much been a pilot work trying to explore this um, impact of heat on um, the blood flow to the fetus and the sort of status within the, the physiology of the fetus and the mother. Um, but we are in a very particular population, so pregnant subsistence farmers in the Gambia, which are which is is not, I would say, generally applicable um, in terms of both the kind of physical activity that they do generally during pregnancy, the general kind of cardiovascular health of the women is is a probably they're probably fitter than quite a lot of other populations, but they might well be less nutritionally rep- replete in some ways. Um, but also they are then exposed to kind of higher temperatures generally. And what we've seen from our data is a kind of U-shaped curve in the response to um, the temperature and blood flow with a specific point at which it looks like it's getting worse, which is quite high in our population. And so I don't think that that could be generalizable to other populations, that particular cutoff. And so really this work is very much needed to... Um, be sort of reproduced in other settings with other populations to try to identify a, a kind of risk cutoff for that population that you would then use around your educational campaign and, and sort of um, how you can warn pregnant women that uh, this is this is the point that you now need to be careful. Brilliant. There is a lot of discussion going on about knowledge co-production and decolonizing um, the global research approaches. Um, how have you engaged with citizens and local communities uh, in terms of sort of thinking about this and how do you think your approach could advance the agenda and what needs to be done further, you think? Aliyu, maybe we could start with you. Uh, thank you very much, Ajay. So uh, let me start from uh, a broad, broad perspective. Uh, oftentimes when we take uh, such an important initiative uh, like this, decolonizing global health, you know, it falls short of a holistic approach, or at best, you know, certain uh, aspects of the initiative are favored more than others. And so intentions, uh, uh, needs, intentions, you know, of undertakings and actions needs to be taken in multitude uh, fronts. And uh, there has to be a paradigm shift, a knowledge shift and a leadership shift. So it really has to be holistic to capture all the different uh, components of decolonizing global health. And so the community has to be factored in this process because they form an important unit of the society. And so when you are looking at it from all these multiple fronts, including knowledge shift importantly for for these communities, I think it is quite a a key issue. And also trying to explore and export what we are doing within this community is also going to really highlight some of the health issues and deficiencies in these uh, communities that might not have uh, uh, been done previously. And so this brings uh, the issue of uh, the the boundaries of global health. This opens the boundaries of global health to communities that have not been reached uh, previously. So the initiatives to conduct these projects in these communities at the first instance is, is an attempt to, to also uh, you know, try to open up the research space uh, in the context that we are speaking now. And are your thoughts on this? 
Um, thanks, AJ. And thanks for a brilliant answer, Aliu. I'm not sure that I have that much to add. I think that was a very kind of comprehensive overview. I guess just one point that I feel is very important for planetary health is that um, the impacts are being felt in the global south and the agenda and uh, kind of funding is being driven from the global north. And that disconnect is not right for us to figure out the way forward. So I think focusing in on people who are living in areas that are already being being impacted to find solutions in their area. They're, they are the people who should be driving the agenda forward. They're the people who should be identifying the problems and um, pushing the solutions. And so how that is achieved is something that I think the whole global health uh, community will need to need to address. Thanks, both. That was a really interesting discussion on, on, on a really complex issue. Um, going back to to the to the work that you are doing and reflecting on the on the kind of challenges and uh, you have faced and the limitations of your of your work how do you plan to work on this uh, in the future how do you want to build on what has already been done aliyu uh, thank you very much ajay i think uh, one of the, the the limitations is to try to uh, is the the accessibility or to try to widen the, the scope of our setting in these rural communities and uh, try to capture a broad uh, area in, in this setting for our investigations. And uh, we think moving forward, we might be able to, to have the capacity to do that. Uh, one of the big problems with, uh, with research is always and has always been funding. And so uh, with, with increase in, in funding, for instance, uh, in undertakings or research uh, focus like this is going to be key or underpin uh, uh, the, the the impacts moving forward. And uh, also, I think these are some of the so, uh, these are some of the research initiatives in this particular focus that we are looking at needs to also be taken to other research settings within Sub-Saharan Africa that is facing uh, uh, similar problems. And so I intend to, in the future, for instance, uh, also add an additional layer of investigation to what I'm doing currently, because basically we're trying to map out uh, human-animal contact networks along a specific geographical definitions in terms of gradients of land use change, and also trying to know the knowledge, attitude, and behaviors of people that usually leads to this land use and land changes that then poses a risk to the transmission of these diseases. Thank you very much, Aliyu. Anna, your thoughts on future work? Yes, um, and, and I'll just talk a little bit about the limitations because you also asked about limitations. So um, I have to talk about COVID because COVID did um, impact on the study. Unfortunately, um, during the first lockdown, every research project within the Gambia and well, the world stopped. And um, so... Research projects stopped, but the pregnancies didn't. So we obviously then didn't have the same follow-up that we were hoping for for the pregnant women. So that's definitely a limitation of the work. Um, and we didn't quite manage to capture a sort of maybe potential change in risk as you travel through your trimesters. Um, 
future work, I think for me, I'm very much interested in interventions um, and adaptations. I think we've done a lot of documenting the adverse impacts of climate change on health. And now it's time to figure out what we're going to do about it and how we do it in the best way for both human health and the planet's health. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, both of you, uh, for those very interesting insights about your work. Uh, and now perhaps I'll hand it over to Kim again to sum it up and close the session. Thanks. Thanks. It's been wonderful to listen to your conversations. In this last section of the podcast, we'd like to gain your uh, knowledge and advice for other researchers and uh, people working in your field. So you've shown a lot of innovation and cut across a lot of fields. But if we break that down a little bit, what can listeners do to make sure that the solutions are implemented and are sustainable? And what would you advise listeners to do when trying to connect with people? Uh, Anna. Those are very great and difficult questions, Kim. Thank you. <laughs> um, sustainability, I think, is a, such um, an ongoing problem for research where you get a sort of set time frame to deliver a project and then that's it, you're done, bye. And I think that's a failure within the research community that that's um, how, it, how it's done. So I don't know that I have any particular answers for you, but I definitely from the Climate Solutions Festival, there was like a very clear, so we are in the process of applying for another project, which will be looking at exploring one of these solutions, which the children brought up, which is solar cookers, and trying to kind of encourage use across the country. Um, and to make it more sustainable than we managed with the Solution Festival, we are partnering with um, NGOs right from the beginning who have the potential to maybe continue the work after the project. So I guess my, uh, from my experience, I would, I would think that you need to consider sustainability from the beginning and from the get-go um, and then put something in place to allow that to, to continue and in terms of reaching communities um, and kind of, I think, like I said, we're very privileged here in the Gambia because the communities have had researchers coming in over the last 70 years. So they're very used to talking to researchers. They're very willing to talk to researchers. But are researchers willing to listen, maybe, is, is more the point. And so um, giving people the space and time to express what their concerns are in, in the particular field that you want to work in, um, I think is important. That's great. So listen, partner and act. <laughs> Sounds good. Alura, in 30 seconds, what advice would you give to our listeners who, who want to work in your field? Um, uh, as regards to engaging uh, the community, I think we need uh, to engage the community early. We need to listen and learn. We need to get to know our participants and use the right communication methods. And uh, also using the right uh, corridors of approach, using community leaders is quite important. I think uh, researchers in the field of uh, One Health and planetary health more broadly, uh, I think using a multidisciplinary approach is, is quite very useful because uh, the what we are looking at in terms of climate change and health is really a complex system and so many different things coming into play. It's not really unidirectional, but multidirectional. And uh, 
to be able to better understand and declutter this complex system and how it impacts on health, you need to really involve uh, uh, information and expertise from uh, multiple disciplines in order to do a good job. So that is, that is very useful. And also importantly is co-production right from the beginning of the project, from the planning to the execution of the project and also uh, uh, after the project is, is quite important because the people feel this project is theirs. They are in, in, in communication with the project constantly. They know what is happening and they would, be, uh, li they would likely you know, uh, adapt to some of these uh, uh, impacts or some of the interventions that the project uh, comes up with. Because if you're looking at sustainable sustainability and uh, ways to mitigate and uh, uh, environmental impacts, for instance, uh, when you engage the community, they would be able to come up, you would be able to come up with methods together that would be more acceptable to the people easily, because that would relate to their culture, that would relate to so many socioeconomic uh, uh, characteristics, attributes or perspective, if, if I would put it that way. So I think it's quite important. Thank you. Thanks very much. So you're really challenging us to think across disciplines and be multi-directional in our approaches, but place communities right at the center of everything we do. So that's a wonderful place to finish. Thank you so much to our guests. Thank you to AJ, our co-host. Thank you to our listeners um, for continuing to stay with us and uh, see you again next week. Thanks everyone. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.